Hello, and welcome to the Can Do MS podcast. My name is Rachel Lottie, and I'm the program's coordinator for Can Do MS. We're excited for today's podcast, which is the first episode in our three-part Embracing Carers series, focusing on those supporting a loved one with MS. Today, we have two guests joining us, psychologist Megan Beyer and support partner Karen Peterson, whose partner Anne is living with MS. Megan and Karen are going to discuss how the different mood and cognitive changes can impact those supporting a loved one with MS. They'll also share some real-life stories and strategies for responding to these mood and cognitive changes. Now, I'd like to introduce Megan Beyer to kick off our discussion. Welcome, Megan. Would you please tell us a little bit about your experience working with people with MS? Thanks, Rachel. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm a rehab neuropsychologist from Johns Hopkins, and basically that's a big word uh, for uh, working with people with MS who have mood and cognition changes. As a psychologist, I work with people to help modify these symptoms so they and their family can live more functionally or live their best life. To get this started, I'd like to share a little bit of some information about the prevalence of mood and cognitive changes. Approximately 50% of people with MS experience mood changes, including anxiety and depression. And up to 65% of people with MS experience changes in their cognition or their thinking skills. These, as well as the more well-known symptoms of MS, like physical changes, can have a major impact on loved ones. Support partners of people with MS can experience increased stress, more psychological symptoms, and changes in their quality of life. In a study that was conducted by the National Caregiving Alliance, 77% of support partners report feeling compassion, but also fear, anxiety, anger, confusion, and isolation when their loved one is diagnosed with MS. Over time, if we look at how people transition, a study conducted in Canada found that support partners remain empathetic, but about one-third of uh, those support partners show signs of mental health conditions like depression. Uh, 42% report significant fatigue, and 20% report feelings of anger and frustration. All of this tells me or tells us that Uh, It's really important to recognize these symptoms in people living with MS, but also their partners or their loved ones around them and try to develop strategies to navigate through these challenging waters. So today we're going to talk with Karen Peterson and hear her and her partner's story and the way they took on these challenges. Welcome, Karen. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you met your partner, Anne? Well, thanks, Megan. Um, I'm from New York. Um, both Anne and I live about 45 minutes north of the city out of Manhattan. Um, when Anne and I first met, I was a college athletic director, and now I work as a middle school, high school athletic director. Um, I met Anne through mutual friends. I was living in New Hampshire at the time, and she was living in New York, and I had family living in New York. My sister lived here, so I ended up moving down to New York, and we've been together for 30 years long time. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship now? What activities do you and Anne do together to stay connected? Yeah, so we're very fortunate. Anne um, 
is doing pretty well physically. You know, she has her moments and her struggles, but um, we play golf together when we can. Um, we spend time with our pets. We like to travel. Uh, we have a house in Maine that's our happy place to kayak and sit on decks and eat lobsters and visit with friends whenever we can. Um, we also like to just hang out at home when we when possible. Um, I work a lot of hours and work a lot of weekends, so anytime we can get at home for some quiet time together is pretty precious so work and spending time together um, takes up a lot of your time. Uh, how do you maintain your own well-being? Sometimes I'm not very good at that part. Um, I do try to work in the garden whenever I can. Um, dirt seems to be a relaxer for me. Um, I have a great supportive group of friends and people that I also work with. And so I, we depend on our friends a lot for support and fun. And they're always there for me to talk to. Um, so even though work takes up a lot of time, um, I should be doing things like exercising more. But um Hopefully, when I retire, I'll be doing more of that. Support partners can have a lot of different reactions to a loved one being diagnosed with MS. Uh, do you remember your reaction when you learned that Anne was diagnosed with MS? I Yeah, I remember my ac reaction pretty clearly. I remember exactly where I was. Her diagnosis was a struggle. They said she had MS. They said she didn't have MS. So MRIs weren't very big back then. Um, so I do remember getting the, the final news. I was at work and I just remember being pretty devastated um, and sort of knew at the time that that would be a reaction I shouldn't show to Anne that I was going to have to be strong for her because she was very devastated. And my first thought that our lives would never be the same, that she'd probably be in a wheelchair. And uh, my heart really broke for her at the time. What were some of the first mood and cognitive symptoms that you noticed in Anne? So you said she was pretty devastated. Um, how did that first present when she was diagnosed and, and maybe as time went on? Yeah, so I noticed mood changes before any cognitive changes. So she was in the hospital at the time and came home and was um, struggling with optic neuritis and balance issues. But she pretty much checked out. Um, she didn't want to engage with me, with our friends. She put on a strong face in front of her family because she didn't want them to see that she was struggling. But um, when it came to me, she was not very engaged. She didn't want to talk. She was on steroids at the time. It was really hard for us to figure out what was going on. We, I thought it was a combination of the steroid treatment and the fact that she had received this devastating news, so she probably wasn't going to be in a good mood. But Anne's a planner, was always a planner, and she stopped planning. She stopped planning meals. She stopped doing anything that she could even do around the house. And she was devastated that she was out of work. Um, this had happened at the end of the year. So we were in the summertime and she was a teacher. Um, so we had a little time to get ourselves together. But I know in the forefront of her mind was how was she going to get through a lesson? How was she going to get to school? How was she going to work? Um, her work was very important to her. And I did start to notice that she was having trouble when she did talk to me. Word retrieval was an issue for her. And so I know it was she was really struggling with how was she going to continue her life as a teacher. But she pretty much checked out on all of us. So there was a lot of uncertainty for her and uncertainty for you about what was going on as well. So at first you thought maybe this was um, about the steroids 
uh, or maybe just the initial diagnosis. You know, I, I never even thought of depression at the time. Anne was never, you know, exhibited any depressive behavior at all in, during our relationship. So, you know, I figured, at least, you know, she just had a rock dropped on her pretty much, and she wasn't feeling well, and she was on steroids. So I figured we were just going to, you know, have to try and get through this, but she wouldn't sort of snap out of it. It was like, I'd bring friends over. She wasn't attentive to them. She would watch some TV. She'd go upstairs. We had a greyhound at the time, and the greyhound was wanted to take care of her. So she and the Greyhound would go upstairs and I'd find myself sitting downstairs by myself. And then she'd even take the remote with her. So, you know, looking back on it, I know now that she felt like she was losing control, but she was really obstinate. You know, she mm-hmm. tried to get in the car and try to drive when she couldn't see. I tried to work deals with her. We live in a two-story house and the bedrooms are upstairs. And I said, you know, if you come down, you need to let me know or have somebody else you know, come and help you. And so she'd like come down the stairs halfway by herself and then go back up Mm -hmm. just to irritate us. But that was, that was behavior that was, she had never exhibited that kind of behavior before. So she didn't want to lose her independence, but, um, you know, it was was worrisome for you as well. I was worried to leave her alone. You know, I, um, at the time her mom was alive and I had asked her mom to come over, but she was again, pretty brave in front of her family. But it was, it was hard for me to to figure out how to go to work and make sure that she was safe. Um, so that was that was very worrisome. And sometimes I'd call and she wouldn't pick the phone up. So I didn't know what mm-hmm. was going on at home. Um, so that was pretty stressful. So when did you learn that mood symptoms could be a part of the MS diagnosis? Well, we um, were lucky that we lived near an MS comprehensive care center and did a lot of research and changed her doctor to there and um, started to see um, a psychologist and who mentioned that these, you know, some of this may be associated with MS. Um, We really didn't pinpoint, I have to say, until about six or seven years ago when more research was done. And that's when we, you know, we really found out that the depression was a symptom of could be a symptom of MS, just like her numbness on her right side was and her optic neuritis. Anna, we said, I'm not crazy. I don't need to go see see somebody. And we're like, no, you're not crazy, but something's going on. And she said, well, the only reason I would go is because I'm crazy. We didn't really know that for a while about the, you know, the symptomatic nature of the depression. So jumping forward in time a little bit, you said about six years ago, um, you learned that uh, depression and and these kinds of mood symptoms could really be a part of the MS diagnosis. Tell me how that changed your thoughts or what you felt about these kinds of symptoms. Did it change your perspective on them? Yeah, I think it did. I know for Anne, it was sort of a big hurdle. You know, she finally looked at me and said, you know, I haven't been crazy all these years. It did make a big difference for her. And she thought at the time that that would make a huge difference for people who were newly diagnosed. She's often said if I had known it it was part of the MS progression or if I had known it was just a symptom of, of MS, I would have reached out for help sooner. Just like you do when, you know, she's on medication for, um, you know, this numbness and tingling that she feels and spasms that, that this would just, she would have just been more um, willing to sort of take that first step and try and get help for it. So that must have been really difficult for you to hear. You were noticing uh, her mood changes, um, but having those conversations 
for her, suggesting maybe going to see somebody, but then hearing, you know, I, I wouldn't go unless I'm crazy. What was that like for you as her support partner? Well, it was very frustrating. You know, I had a, a couple friends um, who lived close to us at the time, and they were wonderful, and they would come over for dinner a few times a week, despite Anne being cranky and not really wanting them there. And, you know, we were all trying to to encourage her to go see someone. You know, we had gone to some newly diagnosed meetings, um, and I had picked up some cards and people for reference and and came home and threw them all away and I'd go through the garbage and keep them you know in hopes that um we could could get help but um it was it was very very frustrating for me thinking that she really needed to talk to somebody and knowing that I think she didn't really want to talk to me because she was scared and didn't want to let me know that and I was scared and didn't want to let her know that so that, that was a difficult time so what was the tipping point? Um, what brought Anne into the MS Center to start seeing the psychologist? I had sort of gone into protection mode and, you know, I always tried to be upbeat at home and try and look at the light side of things. And none of that was working. None of that changed her mood. And then, it, like I said, it was getting pretty lonely. You know, she wasn't engaging with me. She wasn't talking to me. She'd either watch TV or go to bed. And so one night I just sort of, I had reached my breaking point and I just said to her, you know, we can get through the physical stuff, but you have to be present with me. You know, I can push around in a wheelchair if I have to. We can, we can do anything we need to do to get through this, but I can't do it by myself. I probably didn't say it that kindly. That might, um, so that, I think that, She'll tell you that that she kind of woke up and said, you know, really all I've been thinking about was just self-absorbed with me and didn't realize that this was affecting anybody else. And so it was at that point that she started considering going to see um, somebody at the MS Center. How did you find the professional help you needed? Um, I actually got the psychologist card at um, a newly diagnosed meeting that was being run by our local MS chapter. And that person happened to work at the MS Center where we had relocated with Anne's new doctor. So we found this, you know, comprehensive MS Center and got a, um, a read on this psychologist. And and I knew it would probably be important for us to go to somebody that knew something about MS and, you know, if possible, worked with MS patients. We thought that might be more beneficial. And what was your role in all of this? Did you go to any therapy sessions with Anne, or um, how did you transition with her? Actually, the first time we went, my two friends and I went with her. They didn't come in with her to see the psychologist, but there was a new brewery. This was when microbreweries started to um, happen, and there was a new one that opened right near the office, and so we bribed her and said if she would go see the psychologist once, we would take her out for a beer and a burger, and so she reluctantly said that she would go. So it took three of us and a beer bribe to get her there, and then I went, and in probably the first two or three sessions, I went in with her and started to work with um, the psychologist. Then I stopped going because I knew that she probably needed to be able to express herself without me being around. Um, so she went on her own from then on. And like Anne, did you at any point have any feelings of uh, depression or anxiety or things that you thought um, you could seek help for? 
Yeah, I think in retrospect, I certainly do now. At the time when I was in the middle of it all, I just had to keep going. I had to, I had to keep my job. I had to keep the house going. We had pets we had to take care of. I had to figure out how to take care of her and keep her safe. So, you know, in retrospect, yes, I, you know, I had my days of depression um, and certainly my difficult days. I, I felt it was more, I guess I'd describe it more as loneliness, despite mm -hmm. my good friends around me. I felt like I had lost my best friend and partner, like she was sort of gone and missing at that point. It was almost like a grieving process when I look back mm -hmm. on it. I wish that I had gone and um, as Anne, you know, started to see her psychologist, I, I wish I had done the same thing on my own um, because I think it would have been helpful to help me and let me understand better what I was going through and also maybe strategize about how I could um, best help Anne. Were you able ever to connect with other support partners of people living with MS? When we went to newly diagnosed, meaning there's somebody usually brought somebody. So there were, I'm sure, you know, there were support partners in the room and we talked a little bit, but um, I, I don't think there was as much of a heightened awareness of the support partner at that point. I've certainly seen that change in the last few years, you know, with the work that the MS Society has been doing and, you know, can do MS and um, lots of groups. You know, there wasn't like we all got together and chatted about it. You know, I think I do remember talking to a couple people and, you know, everybody's story is a little different because everybody's, you know, dealing with different symptoms. So, you know, I remember right. there were some care partners that were dealing with more physical stuff. And at the time I thought, oh, that's got to be difficult. I'm not sure the physical stuff's any more challenging than, you know, the depression and cognition. Um, but I do see a lot more of that happening now, which, which I think is great. So circling a little bit back to the beginning um, of your story with Anne and Anne getting into working with the psychologist, I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, how that was helpful to her, what changes you saw, and if she got any other kinds of mental health treatment at the time. I guess a, a couple things happened. She started to enjoy going to talk with the psychologist, although she didn't really, um, she would never say that out loud. Um, but uh, what I saw starting to happen was, you know, she'd come home and I'd say, you know, how did things go? And so she was working on some coping strategies about how to get back into teaching. You know, if you talk to Anne, she'll say that one of her biggest struggles was this loss of control. She thought that she couldn't control anything that was going on. Um, there wasn't a cure. You know, she wasn't sure the, the future was so unpredictable. Um, you know, was something else going to happen in another month? But she really started to work with her psychologist on on just small things at first, like how to regain control and deal with some coping skills in the classroom so that we could get her back to work. And she was fortunate enough that she was able, you know, to go back to work through, um, you know, her psychologist and then her doctor. She did um, finally get on an anti-depression um, pill which Anne calls her happy pill. And, you know, after a few months of, of being on that, we saw a big change in her. She started to feel better. Um, so it was sort of a combination of that. That's, that's pretty much how her total mental health package worked for her. So these coping skills, getting back into the classroom and then getting on some medication that helped her. So you were lucky 
enough to be near a comprehensive MS center that had a psychologist um, who knew about MS. Um, but for mm-hmm. those listening to the podcast who might not have such a resource, I just wanted to take a quick break and comment on other ways that uh, they might be able to find similar resources. The National MS Society has a program called the Navigator Program, um, which can direct individuals to resources in their specific area, and you can access that by the National MS Society's website. Um, There's a phone number for the MS Navigator Program, and there's also a chat box on the website that uh, people can uh, log into. There's also a website called uh, www.helppro.com, which has a drop-down option for uh, Uh, mental health professionals with experience in MS. Um, And many neurologists and primary care providers also have access to mental health providers in their specific community. So those are a few ways that maybe other people might be able to access similar resources that you both did. Um, Anything else that you can think of that I haven't mentioned? Look, we're lucky. We live in the New York City area. So, um, you know, we were fortunate that we could find the health care that we needed here and we had insurance. So that was very helpful. But I know a lot of people are going more to websites and, you know, all the good people that do these programs. Um, I know that that's been very helpful. So how did you manage over time to cope with the emotions that you had throughout um, this entire period? It hasn't always been easy and we still have days. You know, it's really... Our friends, our support group of friends and family have been extremely important to me. That's kind of what gets me through the day. You know, my work, too, you know, keeps me busy. But really, it's been our network of friends that has been most helpful to me. And we feel fortunate that we have great friends. What is it about those friendships that help them help you see their support? Or what what is it about them that um, shows you uh, that they're in your corner? Well, they kind of went on the journey with us, many of our friends, and uh, I have some friends that are in the healthcare profession, and everybody sort of pitched in to, you know, one thing I I did when Anne was first diagnosed was let's try and find out as much information as we can about MS, because we we knew very little. And so they kind of went on that journey with me, and, you know, if they thought they found a resource that we could tap into that would be helpful, they would call You know, they also, they check in with me to this day, you know, to make sure, you know, I'll get the question, how are you doing? Like, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. No, but how are you really doing? You know, and they check in with Anne a lot. Um, Don't tell her, um, but they do, you know, they check in with her. And if they they detect something that might not be quite right, they give me a ring and just to check in with us and and make sure that we're okay. And and they make sure that we have fun. How do you balance um, being... A support partner in the MS perspective and uh, your relationship. Uh, so not kind of leaning too much to being a care provider, but maintaining that partnership, that relationship that you both have. I would lie if I said that her diagnosis and us going through this journey didn't change our relationship. You know, I, I think it did. And we still struggle with that. Um, I'm kind of a protective nudge to begin with by nature. And so all of this that we were going through, and particularly when Anne was um, uh, being a little like a curmudgeon, you know, really did affect how we reacted to each other. And we've we've spent a lot of time and a lot of years trying to regain our relationship, though, I guess the way it was, which probably it hasn't. And 
nobody's is, you know, our, all relationships evolve over time, but I've had to take a step back and, you know, there was been some points where particularly when it looks like she's not feeling well or something's up, you know, I, I can be sort of constant, like what's going on? Are you okay? You know, you should talk to me. And so we finally, you know, at one point she said, you know, you're like a pain. I got a mother. I don't need another mother. I said, but I have to be, you know, for, because at the beginning of this, when, you know, mood issues were a real problem, she would not confide in me. She would not tell me anything. And so we finally came to an agreement. I said, look, I will stop asking you how you are and do you need anything if you will promise me that you'll tell me when something's wrong. So we kind of came to that agreement over the years. Mm -hmm. So I try to back off um, as much as I can. Um, but I'm, I'm way overprotective and that drives her crazy. Um, so, so we've had to work on those kinds of things, um, you know, and, and we've had to change um, a little bit of how we do stuff. So Anne has a lot more energy in the morning and she gets more tired as the day goes on and at night and I tend to work late. So what was happening is I'd get home from work and she'd sort of be out. And so she was out early in the morning when she was teaching. And so we really didn't get to spend much time together. So I, I took a look at my schedule and I tried to stay home a few mornings a week um, now because Anne's retired now. So I try to come in a little later to work because I tend to work nights, weekends and afternoons more so that we have some time a few days a week in the morning just to reconnect. So we, we've tried to make those kinds of adjustments um, around when she's feeling best, you know, when we have energy to do stuff. So there's been those kinds of um, accommodations that we've tried to make in our relationship as well. So it sounds like a lot of communication over time and making adjustments uh, as you noticed things that needed to be changed. Yeah, unfortunately, it takes a little while to figure that out. So there's always like a rough spot before that. But yeah, um, yeah you kind of figure it out and try to be reflective and then, you know, try to communicate with each other, um, you know, what's going on and then come to some sort of a solution. But, you know, I, I don't think it's, I, I think that happens in every relationship. The diagnosis that's always there and that uncertainty sort of ramps some of that up. Um, and also how she's feeling and how I'm feeling. I mean, I've, you know, um, there's, I think I'm very susceptible to sort of stress-related health issues, so I have to be careful about making sure I'm taking care of myself and not under too much stress. And and I've had to learn to allow Anne to take care of me. And that's that's been hard to do, but in retrospect, I realize that that's been very helpful to her because mm -hmm. that's the control that she wants, and she wants to play that role. So that took a while for me to figure out as well. That's a really good point that um, a lot of times I've heard, I, I hear from people that um, if you're caring for somebody who has a diagnosis of MS, they almost let their own health go or don't focus on their own health as much. And um, that's a lesson that you've learned and you've had to focus on over time. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, no matter, you know, what folks are dealing with in terms of their MS symptoms, you know, I've learned to ask Anne to do stuff. For me, it took me a while to do that. I felt like I had to do it all and I shouldn't ask her and she's dealing with enough. And But what I found was 
even if I could find one small thing that she could do that was helpful for us or as a family that made her feel better, you know, that made her feel useful. It made her gain some control back and gave her some energy. So I've tried to focus on asking her to do some stuff um, and not hesitate doing that. And we just have to be honest with each other. She has to tell me if it's something she doesn't think she can do. Um, then we figure out something else. But um, I think the ask is important. What other advice or whatever other thoughts do you have for people who are newly diagnosed? Um, not just people with MS, but their support partners as well. Well, I think reaching out for help is the most important thing. There's a lot of resources, as you mentioned. If you're not even in an area with a lot of resources, you can get online um, and try to find some help. I encourage even if the person with MS doesn't want to get help at first, I would encourage you know those in a support position to get reach out and get help for themselves, even if it's just information or someone to talk to about what they're going through. Um, I think that's really important. I, I think that this is a lifelong journey, and you may have to seek support at various you know, ways uh, through that journey. You know, we've had our ups and downs. You go along for a while and everything's great and then something else happens or there's a blip in the road. And um, so you have to, I, I think you have to have it in the back of your mind that you may have to ask for help at various stages. I think it's great to laugh and to cry together, you know, and continue to be honest with each other. Um, those are things that we have found helpful. Well, extremely well said. Um, are there any other thoughts um, that you have that you think somebody listening um, might need to hear or any questions that I didn't ask that you think would be helpful for uh, anyone listening to hear? Yeah, I just hope folks that have might find that our journey um, and some things that we went through would be helpful for them. And, you know, I it, I think it's important to realize you're not alone. You know, when Anne was diagnosed with MS, she goes, I think I'm the only person with MS. I'm like, well, I don't think that's true. There's probably a couple other people out there. So we just have to go find them. So, um, you know, that, that initial shock of the diagnosis is tough to get through. And it does feel lonely at first. But the more you can surround yourself with resources and like people, um, I think the better off you are. And, you know, just... Try not to be isolated, for sure. You're you're not the only people going through this. And what you might think, you know, other people haven't experienced, I'm sure that there's people out there that have experienced the same thing. So it's just a matter of trying to reach out and find them. Well, Karen, thank you so much for sharing your story and um, Anne's story as well and, and uh, helping other support partners who might be going through something similar. Yep. Well, happy to do it. And uh, hopefully folks find uh, this program um, helpful for them. Thank you to both Karen and Megan for joining us. And Karen, we really appreciate you sharing your experiences to help others understand the impact mood and cognitive changes can have on those supporting a loved one with MS. This podcast is part of the Embracing Carer series an initiative led by EMD Serono in collaboration with leading caregiver organizations around the world to increase awareness and action about the often overlooked needs of caregivers. Be sure to check out our Embracing Carers page on our website, cando-ms.org. Please tune in to our second podcast in the Embracing Carer series on the topic of taking care of yourself, 
which will be available on our website and Apple Podcasts on October 17th. Thanks again for joining us today. 